Hello, everyone. This is Mike Epstein, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. My guest today is Aaron Greenwald. Since 2006, Aaron has been the Executive Director of Duke Performances at Duke University in Durham, Durham, North Carolina. Over the years, Duke Performances has commissioned, developed, and premiered major new works from composers such as Steve Reich, John Luther Adams, and Jason Moran. Choreographers and dance companies, including the Alonzo King Lions Ballet and Donald Byrd Spectrum Dance Company. Musicians such as Bon Iver, Simone Dinnerstein, Branford Marsalis, and the Bad Plus. In addition to commissioning and developing new works, Duke Performances maintains an annual schedule of roughly 80 performances. These shows are staged in a network of more than a dozen venues, both on campus and in town, and span every conceivable genre. The majority of these, uh, these presentations include an artist-in-residency component that engages both Duke's campus and the broader Durham community. The organization has a $2.2 million budget and serves upwards of 35,000 patrons annually, roughly 85 of whom are Duke students. Aaron, it is so great to have you on today. Thank you very much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Well, let's start with just a little bit of background. How did you end up at Duke in Durham? Um, well, I have a somewhat interesting uh, I don't I have a somewhat interesting path to getting here, which is that I went to Columbia University um to study theater and to study theater directing and uh was fortunate to be there at Columbia at a time when they had a, an accelerated program. So in five years, I was able to earn a, a bachelor's degree and a, and a master's in, of fine arts in, in directing. Um, and I went, which was exciting, and I got to work with some fabulous faculty as well as living in New York for five years um, and attending a pretty remarkable institution. Um, after that, I, I received a Fulbright to um, study abroad in South Africa, uh, and I was looking mostly at the changing aesthetic of South African theater um, after uh, post-apartheid, um, which is also really, really interesting. Um, and somewhere in the time between when I was uh, coming back and uh, when the th fellowship was ending and when I was supposed to come back, I sort of lost my nerve to be a theater director. Um, and I actually ended up moving back to um, to Nashville, uh, where I worked on country music videos uh, and, and some gospel videos um, for about two or two and a half years. Um, just... In some ways, I was interested in how my, how this, what what I could do with the skills that I had um, learned as a theater director uh, outside of the theater, um, and uh, and then you know after sort of several years there, um, this was probably 15 years ago um, when Nashville was not such an exciting place to be uh, a young person, a 22 or 23 year old. Um, and I moved, moved to New York, and I ended up working for a company called the John Schreiber Group, um, which was – John is now the, the CEO of the New Jersey Performing Arts Center, um, but, it, but, but John had come up through George Ween's organization. And so this was kind of a, 
a live event offshoot of of George Wien's um, festival productions and had a lot of a lot of overlap. And uh, we produced live events in New York City. So I worked on the Toyota Comedy Festival, which is now ostensibly the New York Comedy Festival. Um, the first um, three or four years of the New Yorker Festival, which uh, John conceived along with some folks over at, at the New Yorker Magazine, um, as well as as well as um, a lot of events in Lower Manhattan, especially after 9/11. Um, so the first iteration of the River to River Festival, things like that. And um, at some point, you know, after 9-11, um, that company sort of ceased to exist. And I ended up working at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, which had just built a 450-seat venue. Uh, and, you know, helped them with, uh, with, with uh, you know, creating a programming agenda there. Uh, and after a couple of years there, uh, I had a, um, there's a, a woman that I've been dating for a long time, and she she was going to uh, Duke Business School, and I followed her down to Durham, North Carolina, which is how I got to Durham. And then I I ran a big literary festival for uh, the state of North Carolina out of out of Duke, and um, happened to be here at the time that the that the previous director of Duke performances was was. Um, was leaving and and they uh, they offered me the position on an interim basis initially and and apparently I did well enough that they offered it to me um, soon thereafter on a full time basis. So well, that's that, my story. That that brings yeah. us up to nine years ago. Right. <laughs> wow. So when you said uh, at one point you moved back to Nashville, are you originally from Nashville? No, I'm from Northern California. I'm from just north of San Francisco. Uh-huh. So I moved back to the United States and I moved to Nashville. Uh-huh. I see. That's you know, great. So you, yeah, so it sounds like when you started, you had already had a lot of different experiences, um, sort of in a wide range of things. I mean, you mentioned producing country videos. Uh, you had you spent time in Africa. I mean, I, I think it goes without saying, in a relatively short amount of time since you've been at Duke, the the organization has really come to be recognized for. I don't know if brand is, a brand a certain brand is the right word to use, but a, certainly a certain unique and distinct feel in terms of what you guys do. There's a great video on your website where it's basically a promo video for the organization. And I was watching it the other day, and I wanted to ask you a few things about some some things in there that you mentioned because I think it's a great way to really kick off our conversation here. Um, for example. One of the things you said was Duke Performances is a festival that runs for 10 months. And I think that's a really great, if not unique way to think about a presenting organization. I'm not sure I've really heard anybody else say that. Can you describe what you mean by that? I can. Um, So one of the things, so there's a lot of um, presenters who um, have are housed in a single venue or a single building, and that's the only place that they show things. So one of the advantages and disadvantages of Duke performances is that we don't have that single building. Um, We have a network of about a dozen venues, half of which are kind of on campus and half of which are in the city of Durham um, proper. And we, um, because we don't, because we're not 
because we share the venues with other users on campus and in town, um, we kind of make use of them all. Um, and you know, this this kind of brought up the idea for me. That, so so that so that's what we do. Um, and some of those venues are big. You know, there's a venue in downtown Durham that's 2,800 seats that we use occasionally. There's a venue on campus that's 1,100 seats. There's another one in town that's 1,000 seats. You know, on down to spaces that hold 80 or 80 or 100 people. Um, and I I just personally am. Um, interested in artists that have real specific appeal. Uh, maybe it's because they're fabulous and just uh, unknown, say, in this country, um, or um, as w or maybe they're doing something that's that's really forward thinking. Um, and I'm also interested in um, you know certain audiences that certain uh, certain artists that appeal to really broad audiences. Um, so I think that that's so I think that that like um that kind of shifting of scope um from very specific to very broad across a, a whole range of venues is festival like and then you know I have also have an interest in all kinds of genres um so I think that that you know kind of um approach is also festival like so not to be kind of hidebound by saying, well, we're going to offer three jazz concerts a year and three classical concerts and three, you know, dance performances and three theater shows and, you know, three international artists. I mean, I just think that that's um, not that interesting, really, um, or it's not that interesting to me, and it, it seems like not maybe the best way to always get the, to bring the best artists or, um to showcase the best artists. So I think all those things contribute to kind of a festival flavor. I mean, we're also interested in the context. I think also the other thing about a festival is that, you know, people might be drawn in by a by a big act, by someone by something they know, but at a festival they're they're um maybe more willing to take chances because the festival has a kind of uh, a brand that encourages risk taking. Um so I think we've also been trying in addition to you know, multiple venues, different size venues, different genres. We're also trying to build a brand here where people are willing to take a risk with us occasionally on something that um, maybe they don't know uh, by heart, but that is that sounds interesting to them and they trust us enough to to check it out. And then the final thing is we're constantly, whether it's through residency or artist conversations or um, or you know, our website or we're constantly trying to build context for our audience, you know, so that they have an idea of what the thing is that they're watching, why it's important, how they might, um, you know, how they might value it. Uh, so I think all those things are, are festival like, or all of those things operate in, in um, you know, in what I think are kind of the best festivals, um, so anyway, that's the that's that's kind of been our approach. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, especially from an outsider's perspective. I mean, it, it seems like it would allow you to stay very open and flexible in terms of an entire season's worth of music and genres. Like you said, we're not going to worry too much about any number of a type of music or types of artists. Instead, it's more about how can we be 
as creative as possible, utilizing our very unique spaces that we have. And I think I think there's a lot of organizations out there that um, probably have, you know, more than one venue, if not maybe not as many as you, but maybe it's safe to say three venues they've got access to, but they don't necessarily think that way. So that's part of the reason I wanted to have you talk about that, because I think it's it's a very unique way of looking at an entire year's worth of um, of performances. And, you know, along those lines, it's very easy to see it working. I mean, um, you know, if you look, if, if you look at what you guys are doing in September alone, you're featuring artists from Ethiopia, Portugal, India, and Spain. I mean, it's a, it's a great example of how, as a presenting organization, Duke Performances is able to enrich the local culture. I'm curious, do you, do you consciously try to include such diversity each season? Would you say your primary focus maybe is more on the artistic product, and if it happens to come from somewhere overseas, that's also a plus? How do you approach that? Mm-hmm. So I think that our there I think that Duke Performances kind of operates on three pillars. Um, one is um, we're here to enrich the campus. Um, so that happens through engagement with students, uh, sometimes in the classroom, sometimes just by offering them, you know, substantial discount to come and see a show. We're trying to engage with faculty. Um, we're trying to engage with our extracurricular activity on campus, um, whether it's an acapella group or a Indian dance ensemble. So we're, that's something we're really interested in. We're really interested in having that campus conversation. Um, we're fortunate to be in a really rich community, a uh, community that has a lot of cultural, important cultural history um, that is uh, filled with really curious people. Um, not not curious as in strange, but they're, they are they're curious about about culture, um, and so uh, it's also a community that's 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 historically been about fifty percent white and fifty percent black. I think now it's like twenty percent Latino, forty percent white, forty percent uh, African American. So that's always been been very, very important to us as an organization that we take seriously the fact that um, we're operating in a community um, of of real substantial diversity. Um, and then thirdly, we're trying to build a kind of artist-centered uh, presenting organization, you know, one that, that you know, considers um, the needs of artists in terms of, um, you know, providing a great place for artists to showcase and the appropriate place for artists to showcase, but also, you know, building conversation and um, sometimes supporting the development of, of new work. Um, so, yeah. I mean, and then finally, I think that we have, we have tried to carve out some areas in which we work, you know, I mean, we, we are committed to pro- pro- programming in jazz, uh, international, um, sort of small-scale classical music, so chamber music, piano recitals, vocal ensembles. We think that that's foundational. Um, there's lots of other presenters in the marketplace who handle orchestral presenting and things like that, but we feel like we can, we're can. we making a real impact in, in terms of that classical presenting, and, and we have a great audience for it, and I think we have one of the really good classical series in the Southeast. Um, we present a certain quantity of, of new music, contemporary classical music, which is partly um, related to the fact that Duke offers a, 
a PhD in composition, music composition, and so that's a fruitful conversation we can have on campus. Uh, and then we present theater and dance, and and you know partly because of where we're located in the United States, and the, again that kind of cultural heritage and history. You know we are also devoted to to uh, American vernacular music and the presentation of that. So. Um, so those are the areas that we, those are the kind of the lanes that we stay in for the most part. But that, as you can imagine, that gives us a pretty wide berth. Right, right. And you know, Durham is, it seems like it's located actually in a pretty unique place geographically. You're about three hours from Asheville, two hours from Richmond, Virginia, two hours from Charlotte, and of course, right next door to Chapel Hill. A lot of the things that you're talking about in terms of uh, the artists that you present, I'm one. It would seem like a lot of artists come through the region, you know, the area each year. Does that sort of affect? How does that affect your ability to present new music each season? Um, how? Well, it's a, it's become an increasingly crowded. Uh, I mean, I think you're asking two different questions. Maybe one is, I think. Um, so there's a I think there's a couple trends going on. One is. Um, as we all know, people are fleeing the Northeast and the um, and the big uh, population centers on the West Coast, um, partly because those places have become uh, unaffordable and not great places to, to raise families. Um, and um, and because the weather, especially in the Northeast, is is maybe not not so much to people's liking, um, and so they're moving to these cities in the south in the southeast, um, whether that's Nashville or Asheville or um, Austin, Texas, um, and you know the triangle. I think the triangle region is growing from like 1.8 to. To 2.4 from last census was 1.8 million, and I think next census they project will be 2.4 to 2.6 million. Um, and so there's a lot of routing that's actually grown up over the last five or ten years um, that that helps get artists down to this part of the world. Um, you know, in addition, we're operating in you know, uh, a, a a more and more crowded marketplace. Um, and I think that that's, uh, there are some negatives to that. Of course, you're, you're, you are competing with people that you perhaps were not competing with previously. If you're an organization like Duke Performances that's been around for a while. Um, on the other hand, I think that um, people become more accustomed to uh, checking stuff out. And it becomes part of the reason that people relocate to a place like Durham is that there is um, uh, a su substantial quantity of, of culture uh, available to them. Right. And clearly you guys are taking advantage of that. One of the things I wanted to have you talk a little bit about is how how you approach commissioning new works and new artists each, uh, each season. I mean, certainly over the years there's been some very unique projects you guys have put out, I'd love to hear you talk about, in general, sort of your process for that, how you learn of a new, you know, an, an artist that would be a good fit for something, or how you select the artist. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so you're asking about how we commission work? 
um, or right. how we how we identify artists to commission work. Um, kind of both, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I try and uh, stay up on um, new work that is be new artists that are making exciting new work that are making new work that's exciting artists that are working across across disciplines artists that are creating um some buzz um and you know and then we 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 seek those folks out to um i mean oftentimes i'm asking artists well like what you know, there's so many musicians in particular who make who are making work that's really interesting, but don't have the resources or an institution behind them saying, "Well, what would you like to make?" You know, um, what if you had re more resources, or if someone wanted you to make something more ambitious than an evening length of music, what would that look like? So that's how some of the conversations uh, around commissioning start. Um, and then others, I mean, like we have, Duke has a, you know, sometimes we're trying to tie things into the institution. Like, for instance, Duke has a really interesting rare book and manuscript library. Um, and increasingly, we've been making commissions out of that, out of the holdings in that library. Um, I'll give you a for instance. About four years ago, <clears throat> one of our archivists came to me and showed me a bunch of films by a, um, itinerant filmmaker who was working in the 1920s and 30s and into the early 40s, uh, and he was making movies of small towns in North Carolina. Um, his name was H. Lee Waters, and he actually made a business of this. He would go from uh, he would go into a town and film. Uh, for a couple of days, and he would go back to his studio in Lexington, North Carolina, edit the film, and come back two weeks later and show the film at a local movie theater and take a percentage of the of the gate sales. Um, and uh, these are really remarkable films. They show a region at a point in time that we we don't see a lot of a lot of images of, or the images we do know from the 20s and 30s are really depressing because uh, they were commissioned by the WPA. Um, and they were meant to show people in abject poverty. But these films show, these Waters films show people who are really happy and ebullient. Um, and uh, at some point, Duke uh, uh, was able to acquire the full collection or a, a substantial collection of like 100 of these films. And around the time that that this was shown, and then they got digitized, and you know they Duke handled it. Duke the Duke Libraries handled it like a like a major institution. You'd expect a major institution to handle in terms of digitizing and preservation, all that. And so after this was shown to me, shown to me, um, Jenny Scheinman, the violinist and singer and composer, was coming through town with Bill Frizzell. And they were doing a show here that actually also used some archival material, but not our archival material. And I struck up a conversation with Jenny, and I said, you know, I'd love you to to look at this stuff at some point. Um, and uh, about three years later, she called me and she said, "Hey, Aaron, I've got a I've got a show based on those Waters films that I want I want Duke to commission." Um, which is very like if you know Jenny at all, I don't think that that's like a totally 
unheard of thing. I mean, I think in the mean, in the inter, interim, she had a couple. She was had a, a um, a couple of children that she was taking care of and all that kind of stuff. Um, all the all the responsibility that goes along with um, taking care of young children. But um, so we this, just last year commissioned or just last year premiered that project, which was called like Canapolis, a moving portrait. Um, so in, in in that instance, we were I was I had been interested in Jenny for a long time. A lot of people are not super familiar with Jenny Scheinman, but I think she's a spectacular improviser and, and composer and a really good singer too. Um, and uh, so that's what made me interested in her to start out with. And then we had these films that were sort of classic American films in a way. And, uh, and, and we went with it, you know, we were able to, to raise the money through grants to make the project happen in the, in the manner it was supposed to. Um, and that was, you know, that's like a really good example of how we, how we made a commission. Um, you know, uh, uh, there's another example of like we had a, we commissioned a project based uh, um, a, a right of spring from the Bad Plus. You know, we would know we wanted to work with the Bad Plus. We wanted them to do something more ambitious than than an, an evening just of music. And we we made this right of spring commission with them, which was great and really successful and. We had such a good time that it was sort of like, well, what's the next project we could do with the Bad Plus? And, um, you know, they're those guys are super idiosyncratic, and um, although they're a really, really fine ensemble, there's not a ton that they, uh, uh, all three of them totally agree on musically. Um, but I knew that something that they did all agree on was uh, Ornette Coleman's science fiction. That that great. Um, you know, mid-career Ornette Coleman record, the last acoustic record. And so, you know, just knowing those guys and having, you know, cultivated a relationship with them, we I went to them and said, well, can you guys make a, a version of science fiction uh, we would like to commission at? And and so they end up doing that. Um, and that inv- and that and they brought three horn players aboard, uh, Sam Newsome, soprano player, the... Um, the the alto player and tenor player um Tim Byrne and uh the cornetist uh, uh Ron Miles and uh and that's how we got to commission a version of of Ornette's um science fiction which was you know great it was like a great it was a great window into what is um what was to me previously a somewhat inexplicable piece of uh, a recording you know beautiful but but you know, hard to get under the skin, and and those guys, um, those guys made it live, you know, and and it was it was kind of monumental and and um, just hugely fascinating to to see to see that that piece, and to and I was really proud that we were able to have a a hand in helping it happen. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. I mean, I love hearing you describe your process for interacting with these artists because I don't this is such a big component of what you guys do. And at the same time, sort of across the board, I mean, just nationally, there's not that many institutions that are in a position to be able to do what you do. And I think that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier um, and maybe even relates to sort of the idea that the season is a festival or maybe in the sense it's another unique offering that you guys are able to do. So it's really fun to hear you talk about that. Um, you know, I also know that 
within the context of what you do, there's a lot of student interaction or, or as t to the best extent possible to have artists interact with students. So just to reference that video I talked about earlier, you mentioned something along the lines of we want artists who can lead a conversation with our students. What are some examples over the years of instances where that's occurred? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think, so I'll, I'll go back to the bad plus, and then maybe we can drive it forward from there. So the bad plus, when they first came and we made that, and they made that right of spring with us, they were simultaneously working with four of our um, PhD candidate composers. And so those composers were writing uh, new pieces for the Bad Plus, which the Bad Plus um, read. They did readings of the pieces and gave the composers feedback. And then um, the composers came back with new revised pieces, and the Bad Plus read them again. This was over three or four visits. And then finally, um, we got down to a, a place where, where the the ensemble, the Bad Plus, was able to make recordings of those of those compositions. So that was a really interesting process um, for the composers, as you might imagine. You know, the Bad Plus is not um, a traditional ensemble that gets, you know, music that they are supposed to play down. You know, they they write most of their music or their standards. So. The interaction with that ensemble, all all those guys write music, all of them read music, uh, was and our composers was really interesting. I mean, having the bad plus say to a young composer who's probably mostly written for quartets and piano and orchestra, you know, hey man, this doesn't swing, <laughs> or like, or like you're giving me. Um, too much information here and not enough information here. Um, or like I'm actually trying to understand what it is you're saying. That's not something that that's not like something that is intoned to young composers very often, right? Yeah, they don't uh, often have the chance to do an iteration process like that. It's pretty Yeah, and they also don't have someone who's like the bad plus who's sort of like, Hey man, this just doesn't just doesn't swing, you know? Like Yeah. I, I mean or like this is lame, you know. Like I mean, that's that's a that's a fun that's an interesting thing because jazz is so much about, um, you know, jazz is jazz is cool, <laughs> like <laughs> like like whatever whatever. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that that's true, but because of the manner in which it's presented and all that kind of stuff, jazz has a kind of um, you know hipness to it that I think the musicians are pretty aware of. Um. You know, and there's probably uh, technical reasons beyond me that it that it is hip and that it does swing and that it is, you know, anyway rooted and maybe it's rooted in folk music, whatever. Um, but yeah, having that iteration process, having those conversations, and realizing that um, that they were actually writing for for real living musicians who had ideas and feelings about the music they were playing. You know. Yeah, that's really great. Um. You know, other examples include, like, we had this company, Lines Ballet. So Alonzo King is this really great San Francisco-based choreographer um, who makes, uh, you know, beautiful, beautiful work. 
uh, and is is you know well extremely well thought of both for his choreography but also for his as a teacher. And so we had um, the company in residence here for like two weeks, building um, a new work, making the North Amer North American premiere of a new work. Um, but they were also uh, teaching. Um, so the students, our, our ballet students, were able to take company class with with Alonzo and his dancers. You know, so you know every day students are able to take a company class, an hour long or two hour long company class with, you know, one of the best ballet teachers in this in, in the world, as well as, you know, a company of professional dancers. So that's like a very unique and specific experience. I mean, I think other things that went along with that residency were, you know, conversations about the work. He was making, he, he'd made a version of Scheherazade, which is sort of a, a famous, um, a famous ballet uh classic ballet and he you know we so there were conversations about orientalism and in in art um you know and he there were also the students were also also did some interviewing of the dancers where they were sort of asking them about their lives and how they do what they do and what it's like to be a dancer as a as a full-time gig um and then we also had a documentary video document our center for documentary studies also filmed the whole thing and did interviews with the dancers so there was so I had all these kind of this kind of a multi-layered residency um that that culminated with the North American premiere of this new piece That's really great I you know for me personally I I just I love hearing stories about sort of the behind the scenes things that go into these works that you're talking about and Really great hearing you uh, describe some of these processes. I, I mean, I could. I, there's about a hundred things I'd love to have you talk about, and I'm. I know we don't have too much more time, so I want to ask you maybe a sort of a, another open-ended question before we wrap things up here. You, you know, thinking about things in sort of context, you joined Duke Performances almost what is it, eight years ago now, or it was it was in? Yeah, I think this is my ninth season. Yeah, so, you know, in around in 2007, I mean, I vividly remember that spring because I was reading a Wall Street Journal article for a review of something new called the iPhone. So it, it goes without saying that since you've been there, a lot has changed. That's not to say I'm curious to hear your thoughts about, you know, the role of smartphones and what you do, but what I'm curious about is just in this relatively short amount of time, I mean, what are some of the bigger trends that are affecting how you do what you do today that maybe weren't true eight years ago? Huh. Um, That's a pretty well, open-ended question. I mean, yeah, I, I, sort of, I mean, I guess I, yeah. I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can speak to technology. How technology? I mean, I, I think in a way um, the proliferation and advent of new technology that actually doesn't do very much um sort of spiritually or uh in terms of the in term like the the new technology that exists in the world does not take the place of live art in fact it makes live art more important um you know, it's great that I can go into RDO and listen to, you know, a million and a half hours of new of new music. That's fabulous. Um, 
but that doesn't take the place of I mean it's great that I can pull up Lula Pena the Portuguese pretty obscure Portuguese singer on online and listen to her record but like that doesn't I mean that that only is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to listening to having the opportunity to hear Lula Pena live in concert you know um I mean being able to stream House of Cards and you know watch it from you know ten and ten at night till five in the morning. I mean that's that's cool, but that doesn't that doesn't like that doesn't take the place of Julian Sands, you know, performing a, a play that Harold Pinter wrote for him. You know, um, in fact, there's all this kind of rattle and buzz around us. Um, that's uh, that's cool. I mean, it's a good way to. It's a good way to learn about things that you don't know about, but it it doesn't it doesn't substitute for the sort of soul shaking capacity that that live performance has. Yeah, would, would you say? I mean, it's so hard to say for sure, but have you noticed maybe the accessibility and sort of the on demand nature of the way people listen to music now has that somehow maybe for specifically younger audiences, is that somehow translated into shorter attention spans or is it too too soon to tell? What do you think? I think that... um, I think that younger audiences have more distractions um, in their lives. I think that Duke students, so if I'm I'm at Duke, I'm dealing with you know, the top 1% of college students in the country, right? Um, just statistically, um, in terms of their grade, their scores and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they're like they're like a mile wide and an inch deep, you know, mm-hmm. many of these kids. I mean, they're very, they're, they're very bright. They're like electric bright, and they're extremely clever. Um, but they haven't... Li- the, the 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 culture in which they live requires them to know less and less. Um, you know, one thing that we talk about all the time, or that we, I've t- I've been talking about or thinking about more and more frequently, is like there is an illusion in this culture that you don't actually need to know anything because everything is at your fingertips, right? So. Um, I don't know who the bad plus is. Well, I'll just look it up on Wikipedia, and then I'll know who the bad plus is, right? Well, like, technically, that's true. You can find out that it's Dave King and Reed Anderson and Ethan Iverson and that who plays what instrument and the albums they've made and that they've covered Nirvana and this and that, but you don't have any real experience with them, you know? You haven't spent any time with the music. You haven't... um, you know, you haven't you haven't actually engaged, and, and but you have the illusion that you actually know something, and um, that's a real ch- problem, um, and it's 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 compounded by the fact that I actually think that real knowledge is um, is not linear, right? So, you know, if you know about the bad plus. Um, if you know about Ornette, you know, th- then you you might say, oh, well, those guys are really into Ornette Coleman, and Ornette Coleman makes me think about Albert Eiler, and Albert Eiler makes me think about, you know, I, I don't know, Mark Rabot, and Mark Rabot makes me think about, you know, um, 
David Hidalgo and you know so you're able to like kind of leapfrog around or Charlie Chaplin and I know about those Charlie Chaplin films aren't those films funny you know it's like but without that without that if if, if all your knowledge is kind of um based on the immediate your the the speed of your internet connection then you don't you then you're at real, a real disadvantage in the world you know you don't yeah. actually know you don't know anything and part of the fun of knowing things is knowing how they connect Right. That's a really good point. I mean, I was fortunate in that when I started to seriously get into music, it was, it was, I would say, I mean, probably around 1998 to 2000 is when I have vivid memories. And that wasn't that long ago, but I have vivid memories of um, being able to go to record stores. And that process you're describing of somebody told me probably, you know, my, I used to play the drums, so probably my drum teacher told me to check out uh, you know, a Max Roach record and whoever. That process of figuring out who he played with and who they played with and on and on and making those connections is a huge part of of that of the music. And I think to relate it sort of to the more general context of what we're talking about, I have to constantly remind myself when I listen to music, you know, if it's online here on, on Spotify or whatever, because like you said, you can have access to everything constantly remind myself to go back to what I was listening to yesterday because otherwise I'm going to probably listen to something else and unless I do that and live with that one song or that whole album uh, for weeks on end I'm not going to it's not really going to become a part of me and, and I think it kind of relates to what you're talking about that whole idea of it's it shouldn't just be about how fast you can look something up it's really how how much can you live with something and and you know and then ultimately as an artist like make it your own I mean that's a huge part of the process so it's interesting to hear you talk about that because um, certainly I, I would think that's going to affect or is already affecting the way audience younger audiences uh, want to be able to access music it's not how they learn about it yeah yeah I think that that's probably true I mean on, on the other hand. They're probably, in a way, they're probably more open. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's not, like the 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 forces of taste in our culture are, um, they're still monolithic, and they still they still favor things that are that are, um, banal, uh, as opposed to things that are enlightened or transcendent. But I do feel like, um, you know, that that the immediate accessibility of so much um, does loose the grip on 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 some of that stuff, you know. So so, so that so that really obscure things are actually quite quite accessible, you know. Right, right. Certainly, sort of the, the long tail effect coming into play. I think so, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I totally agree with you, Michael, that, like, the, the importance of sitting down and, um, taking something in is harder and is more and more difficult. And it's something we need to practice with greater and greater frequency. And it's hard, it's hard for me, man. I mean, I'm, when I put on a show, I gotta, like, remind myself to put down my my phone, you know, and not be texting or checking Facebook. It's really it's hard. It's really difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think people get addicted to their devices for sure. 
They do, yeah, they do. Um, but it's also hard to watch something. I mean, it's hard to be an audience member. Like a, a funny story is that my father, um, when he goes to the theater, he falls asleep like like instantly. Um, and it's not because he doesn't like theater. Um, I don't think. I think it's actually because uh, it's demanding. You know, and so like you can have one of two responses in the face of demanding things. You can engage or you can deflect, you know. And so my dad's falls asleep because he doesn't really want to engage. Yeah. And um, I think I'm we keep talking about this forever, but I think that brings up a really good point too. I was speaking um with uh, Mervon Meta at the Royal Conservatory, right? And he was talking about there's a big, and this is nothing new. There's there's a problem with uh, or, with orchestras nationwide. It's, there's been a problem with it for a long time. But one of the things he was stressing was the importance of creating new contexts and experiences for younger audiences to enjoy it. And that I think relates to what you're talking about. It's it's you, as an audience member, especially as a um, of a type of music like that, that you, it, it is absolutely engaging, and it requires you to be present. It requires you to be focused, and I don't know. I mean, maybe that is not as easy when certainly there's not as many opportunities to see music like that. But at the same time, if people are experiencing things so quickly, does that mean that they have to sort of change the way the music is presented? What do you think? Um, no. <laughs> I, I, I I don't. I mean, I you know I I I I am. I think that this is like. A, I mean, I, so I I should say that I believe in. Um, like I actually don't really believe in. Um, like I don't believe that the savior of classical music is going to be, um, doing short performances in cafes. You know. And I actually don't think that that's going to like bring lots and lots of new people to classical music. I think that there are certain pieces that can and should be performed in those kinds of spaces, and um, that's cool, you know, uh, that's fine. But um, if you think that that's like a more substantive or more moving experience than watching a string quartet play you know an 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 evening that 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 you know includes like um Beet you know a, a beethoven cycle or haydn bartok schubert or you know you're a fool <laughs> i mean you're you're a fool you know that's that i mean it 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 exists in the fashion that it exists for a reason and it's not because it's not like um it's not like a dumb reason it 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 is it it there's a structure there's a beginning a middle and an end you know and um you know and i and i i just fundamentally believe, believe that that's important you know do we need to get younger audiences to watch classical music like um yeah it's really important but i i you know i think we do that by talking about how the stuff is essential and foundational and that that we describe the the rigor with which the music is made and the immediate and the immediacy of the music, you know, um, and that you don't have to you don't have to know anything about how to play a violin or who Beethoven was. If you're really present and you're a good listener, 
You get it, man. You get it. <laughs> um, so, in a way, I'm I'm like, I think when I think when orchestras do these things where they have like a an eat around or whatever, I mean, I think that's cool. Um, and I think you know all kinds of mixed programming is can be cool, and I'm a I'm a I'm in favor of that. Um, but I'm I'm I think that the advantage I have is I can do things I can present a great chamber music series that is like straight down the heart of the plate, right? Great essential composers, great ensembles from all over the world, younger, older ensembles, et cetera, et cetera. And I can present an evening of new, and I can present a series of new music, you know? I can present a, I can present a straight ahead jazz ensemble and I can present the avant-garde, you know? Um, and that's, that's like, I mean, that's when you get into the meaty stuff, you know? I mean, if I was just a, uh, if I was just an orchestral presenter and that was the, and I was trying to like steer that ship toward younger people, you know, the dock where the younger people um, are waiting, that would be, I, I would be terrified, you know, but, but I actually don't have that. I don't, fortunately I don't have that problem, you know? Right. Right. Well, does that make sense? Well, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. You made some really, really good points there. And I'm just trying to figure out a good segue to wrap it up. Cause I don't want to take up too much of our time here. Um, um, I don't know. Maybe this would be a good stopping point and we should just figure out a time in the future to con- continue this episode. Cause I think we're getting into some stuff that a lot of people probably think about and talk about and um, would be beneficial for them to hear about. What do you think? Yeah, I'm happy to chat any, at any point. You know, I mean, it's fun to talk about this stuff and to work it out. And I and I I recognize fully that I'm in a really privileged position. I'm at a university that is able to subsidize the performance, some of the performances we make. I'm at a in a city where people are curious to check out new things. I'm at a um, I'm at an institution that wants to pursue that wants to make sure that we. Um, uphold the foundational while while seeking the forward leaning. Um, so I get to I get to play in in a way that um, I find really rewarding. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation here, your you know your upcoming season is so diverse. So I think anybody in the area um, is going to be in for a real treat. I know that if I it wasn't so far to get down there. I'd love to check out some of those shows. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that, man. And it's good to chat with you about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Aaron, I can't thank you enough for your time. Would love to continue this, and uh, hope you have a great rest of the summer. Yeah, have a have a great rest of the week and good weekend. Thanks so much. Okay, Mike. Take care. You too. Bye.